0: And good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. And welcome to episode 25 of Cinema. I'm Harrison Smith. And uh, didn't have an episode out last week. I got smacked right at the evening of of Thanksgiving dinner with what I thought was the flu. But turned out to be pneumonia. So I'm so thankful for that. So while I was sick on the couch for at least three, four days... Uh, I watched a lot of stuff, which I usually don't get a chance to do. This podcast was inspired by a woman named Kate Wagner, who has absolutely nothing to do with entertainment, has no endorsement of my cinema podcast whatsoever, and I've never met her and never communicated with her. However, she has a great website out there uh, called McMansion Hell, and it's about the architectural disaster that is known as the suburban McMansion. And I highly recommend you you go visit it. It is uh, McMansionHell, I believe, .com. I am looking at her website now, and that's exactly what it is. However, back to Kate and what I'm talking about is the fact that she had an interesting take on why the McMansion is popular. And uh, we're going to be getting into that because it dovetails perfectly uh, into what I'll be talking about today with, with certain films in our entertainment and, and the acceptance of entertainment and then certain part of cinema or cynicism that that buoys some of these projects that I'll be talking about. I watched Kate Wagner speak on a TED Talks uh, supporting uh, her statements on on McMansions and and why they're not just environmentally bad. Uh, That wasn't really her take. They're just basically a creative offense, an architectural offense. Kate Wagner posits that the McMansion, the problem is, is that, number one, everybody loves it. And when you ask them why they love it, a lot of people don't know why. Uh, these are gigantic houses, often too big for the people that live in them. They're huge expenses to heat and cool. And most of all, they are architecturally stupid, as she has called them. They're wasteful. Uh, they they have architecture and, and things uh, attached to them and built into them that serve absolutely no purpose. Balconies that go nowhere and are not functional. Uh, wasted space. Uh, complete messes. And we pay incredible amounts of money for them. Uh, the style of them is, is a bric-a-brac, a mishmash of of different styles that she said are cobbled together from some high school kid's concept of what a house should look like. And she said, we're taught to love these things, that we must love them, and that this is what defines the American dream and what defines our suburbs. And people embrace them, and they don't know why. And this made me think about some things as I was watching television while I was sick. And one of them was... It's a Wonderful Life. I've seen the film before. In fact, I had to watch it in a college film class when I got my bachelor's. And uh, I think most of you listening have seen the film. And then the other thing was The Irishman. I finally was able to catch The Irishman uh, on Netflix and watched all full three and a half hours of it. I hope you'll follow along with me. And I'd love to hear from you on this because most of all, I'm just throwing out questions to hear what my audience thinks because we're all the ones that are consuming these things. And this kind of dovetails right off episode 24, which was about consuming cinema. It's a Wonderful Life was a bomb at the box office when, when it was released. And over time, much like we've seen with other films, has become a classic. I guess we've been told it's a classic. It's hard to hate It's a Wonderful Life. It has a good message. It it means well. It's, it's very sentimental. And, and others argue saccharine and... And very sappy. And uh, you know, then you can get into the whole really negative side, and it's pushing a Christian agenda and and all of that stuff. And and the the only minorities that are that are shown in the film are are servant help and and played for the stereotype that they were at the time. And uh, you know, first world problems for this guy. Also the fact that you know the George Bailey was basically a bungling financial fool ahead, the head of a Ponzi scheme that really should have gone to jail. Uh, savings and loans scandal kind of thing. While lying there and not really so much watching it this time, but listening to it, I got to tell you, the one thing that I noticed is It's a Wonderful Life is a fucking loud movie. Like everybody's screaming in it and shouting and yelling. There, there are very few quiet moments in it. And I remember lying there on the couch with my eyes closed going, oh my God, Like, like turn this down. And maybe it's because I had a 102-degree fever and I'm I'm irritated and all of that. But I really felt the film far more obnoxious than than I've ever experienced it before. Now, I've seen it about four times. And I've really watched it those many times to to give it a chance. And every time, even this time being ill, I I don't really like it. I don't think it's a really well-made movie. I mean... Yeah, it's Jimmy Stewart, and, and you've got some good performances, but the dialogue is terrible. Uh, the the acting overall is very buffoonish and cartoonish, and, and most of all, it's long. The movie doesn't even get to its point. I mean, it spends the whole opening of this film, you know, setting it up with these angels and these galaxies talking back and forth, and I get it. They're talking to Joseph and blah, 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 and that's all cutesy and, and all that stuff, and and, and then you go into where that kind of all disappears. And it's about, you know, well, let's look at George's life. And then that goes on. And we, we watch this whole movie leading us up to the point where, you know, the uncle squanders, loses the money. I mean, he, he puts it in the newspaper and loses it, ends up in Potter's lap. And we, we went all the way through for this. And then it starts almost all over again with, with Clarence the Angel getting involved. The pacing is horrendous, the editing is atrocious, but somewhere along the line, cable companies got a hold of this and just started showing it all the time and said, you know, God damn it, you're going to love this. This is a Christmas classic and by God, you're going to love it. And they they started marketing it. I remember as a kid growing up, you know, the marketing of it. And the first time that I ever watched it was my mother making me watch it. And I sat with her. My mother made me rarely ever sit and watch things on TV. But she wanted to share this with me. This was an important film for her growing up. And when I watched it as a kid, I think I was 12, 13, I didn't find it all that sentimental. And and I was a sentimental kid. And I told my mom, she goes, well, what do you think? And I said, I think it's long. And at the end, when it was over, I remember feeling, oh my God, thank God it's over. And keep in mind, It was longer because there were commercials in it. I didn't watch it on, on any type of free basic cable where they just played the movie and it went on and on. And, and over the years I've asked, I even asked in my college course, just why is It's a Wonderful Life so popular? Why do people love it so much? And the only answers I could ever get back is, it's a great Christmas movie. Well, what does that mean? Again, it's kind of like, I'm, going to put it out there. I I used to go to church with my ex-wife. I I found the whole experience very bizarre. I'm not knocking anybody that goes to church, but in my case, I went to this very small town church and there were these people that seemed to almost wanted to be hijacking uh, the pastor, uh, his, his job. That's what they wanted to do. They were almost holding alternate sermons after the church with the congregation. And they seemed to have all the answers to everything. Well, I'll be honest with you. At that time, my mother just died. My my marriage was in, in collapse. And I'm wondering a lot of things in life. And I went up to them and I said, you know, I have to ask you a question and I'm not being a wise ass. I'm not being a jerk and I'm not being sarcastic, smug or condescending. What does it mean to you and explain to me? Because the patent answer is always the same. And that is when I ask this question and it is. So what does it mean that Jesus died for our sins? And they looked at me and they go, well, that's the answer. He died for you. He died for your sins. And I looked at them. I said, I don't understand that answer. I said, can you explain it? You seem to know the answer. And you know what? They couldn't tell me. All they kept saying was, well, he died for your sins. Well, you're, you're answering the question with the question. That's begging the question. You're, you're not giving me a definitive answer. He didn't know me. I, I was not around at that time, and I don't understand the point of allowing myself to be hammered up onto a cross for the sake of saving the people that are actually hammering me to the cross. And I'm not being a jerk, and I'm not being condescending. Now, to be fair for any of you that may be offended by this, I have gone further. I, I, I've read the Bible now. I've, I've read it cover to cover, and I, I do theological research. So I think I found my answers Uh, here and there. But at that time, I really didn't have an answer. And I was asking out of sincerity. And I have found over the years that that the same applies to It's a Wonderful Life. When I ask people, why do people love it so much? Their answer is pretty much always the same. It's a great Christmas movie. I guess it means something to everyone in, in their own way. But as a movie itself, for me, I don't think it's a wonderful film. I really don't. And I never understood the timeless classic moniker attached to it. And I'm not being a curmudgeon and I'm not being cranky and I'm not being angry. I'm just saying from a critical point of view, it is a not well-made film and it is not well put together and its narrative is is completely flawed. There are a lot of problems with it. But over the years, and we're talking, this thing has had decades and we've gone through Vietnam and Watergate and, and all the messes that we have. I guess it's just a, a piece of nostalgia that is so sweet. It's it's kind of like, you know what it reminds me of? It kind of reminds me of, remember that shitty hard candy your grandparents used to keep in a glass bowl or dish on an end table and they never had anything else? As a kid, you, you ate that hard candy because Well, it was the only thing there was. I remember there were like these shitty peppermints or those green. They they all look like glass. I remember that. And you ate them, but you didn't like them. But they were pretty good for what was there. That's what I equate It's a Wonderful Life with. It's a dish of shitty hard candy. And it's better, I guess, than nothing. And we go back to it. It's just this little lump of sugar that is no good for us. But it's a lot better than the the plate of beets and liver around us. And maybe that's the best explanation. And look, on a non-Christmas uh, note, I say this is the same thing that happened to The Shining. And I've talked about this before. You know, The Shining, oh, it's the most terrifying movie ever, blah, blah, blah. And I said in previous podcasts and on my blog and on Howard Stern, people forget that when the film opened and it came out, it was met with basically a shrug and a, I guess... And uh, it, was, it had a very tepid response. Many felt the film was over long. Warner Brothers definitely thought the film's running time was a hindrance. It was boring. But over the last 40 years, the movie has been rehabilitated into a quote-unquote terrifying motion picture. And I don't believe it is. However, it is a nice piece of shitty hard candy. And that is in, in a bowl of, of really lousy Stephen King adaptations the Shining stands out as, as a piece of, of hard candy that you can eat and somewhat enjoy because it was well made. It was well done. It's a Wonderful Life has Frank Capra. It's hard to hate Frank Capra. He's America's good guy. And, and he, you know, no, no coincidence that he has Jimmy Stewart, another of America's good guys. And I think Tom Hanks today is the closest thing we have to Jimmy Stewart. And he's playing Fred Rogers. So another good guy. So it's hard to throw stones at these things. They have almost built-in defense mechanisms against them. But this podcast isn't a rag just on It's a Wonderful Life. I'm going to go into a couple others, and for the most part, they're going to focus on holiday films, and I'll leave The Irishman for last. Uh, Let's go back real quick before I get into the holiday films, the rest of them. These films are kind of lining up like McMansion's. They, they borrow from different films. They borrow cliches and tropes and all of that stuff, and they assemble them all together into what looks like a big, fancy thing. But in the end, most of them are functionally useless. The point of my podcast is to say that we need to look at things with a, with a sharper, critical eye. And that's what Kate Wagner talks about as well in what we demand for our homes and our architectural styles. I say we, we should apply the same points, over to our entertainment and, and what we're branding as amazing and great and classic. I've mentioned before, I ran a movie theater, a mall cineplex for eight years. And um, I watched a lot of movies come and go. And I've seen a lot of films deserving of a great success. And then there are some that just left me scratching my head. and And I'm going to give you one of those head scratchers right now. And that is Home Alone. All of those Home Alone movies, except for those non-Macaulay Culkin sequels, which none of those matter. So basically, it's Home Alone 1 and 2. And, and I got to tell you, folks, for the life of me, I don't get it. I never got it. And, and we had Home Alone. I think that thing opened in November, if I'm not mistaken. I could look it up, but I don't really care. However, I do know it played all the way through spring. We had that fucking movie to like April. And it was still making money. And someone can check on this, but I believe it was already even out on home video at that time. And we still had it in our smallest house and the son of a bitch was still making money. People were still coming to see it. And that print was so scratched and so damaged and spliced and it didn't matter. I think if we would have kept it through the summer, the stupid thing would have still kept making money. And in the beginning, I thought, well, you know, Culkin's funny. I liked him in Uncle Buck. He was a cute kid, kind of had that spanky McFarlane thing going, maybe even a a spanky and Scotty kind of thing. And uh, so I thought, all right, I was seeing a girl at the time and like, well, why don't we stay one night and we'll watch it? I could use a nice holiday movie. And I watched it and, you know, look, it's John Hughes and Chris Columbus and all of that stuff. Look, there's nothing really physically wrong with the film. It's got a John Williams score and it's well-made and I adore Catherine O'Hara, and uh, so, you know, look, the the overall casting of it, you really can't go wrong with any of the cast. I mean, it's good, and and Macaulay Culkin's a funny kid, he really was, but I I just didn't understand why this thing was making money hand over fist, and you know, there were people that were leaving it, I remember, with tears in their eyes and wiping their eyes because of, you know, the little boy helped bring uh, Robert's Blossom together with his, his son and his family, and I'm like, this is all sap. Like this is, uh, we didn't see this coming, you know, when they talk in the church and, you know, the old man's going to go and make up with his son. Like, you know, Culkin was like some angel in the church that it was an, it's a wonderful life moment is really what it was. And again, I don't think it's a bad movie. So for people going, I don't think it sucked. I never, you never heard me say it sucked. I, I just didn't understand why it made the tons of money that it did. And, and it was, it was a piece of that shitty hard candy in the bowl. The rest of the stuff around it just wasn't as tempting. And this seemed the best deal. And that's how I felt. I felt that they pushed this on us. You know, by God, you are going to love Home Alone. It's touching. It's sweet. The whole thing. And I thought, okay, well, they got off on one. Good for John Hughes. Okay. There's another one, another feather added to his cap. And you made a lot of money off this, and good for him. He entertained me in my teen years, so he's having a blast and making some bucks. But the sequel was even worse. I mean, how many times can you leave your kid home alone? Don't you think? I mean, shouldn't Child Protective Services be looking into uh, the McAllister family? So in addition to that, we have the same plot basically all over again uh, against the, the skyline of New York, and it's just a stupid movie. And it's the same thing all over. And I didn't find it all that funny. And I watched it in the theaters, but it made another ton of money. And I just didn't get it. And, you know, it's considered, again, another great holiday film. Oh, what wonderful Christmas movies. And I see it now. I see it posted on online from people and my friends who post, oh, you, you Christmas has started when you have back-to-back Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone 1 and 2. And I'm like, I don't see why. As films... They're okay. The narratives are the same. I think they're completely boring. Uh, They borrow all the the hallmarks and, and tropes and cliches and warm fuzzies that we've seen over and over. In other words, neither film brings anything new to the table. And I didn't particularly find either one all that hilarious. And I'm always dubious when somebody comes to me and says, you have to watch this. This is hilarious. And I just don't get it. But the media jumped all over this and the marketing and the image of Macaulay uh, slapping his face with that aftershave uh, became, you know, a classic. And, And over the years, we've been told this is what you're going to watch. This is what you're going to enjoy. And I saw something, I guess, similar with Tim Allen's The Santa Claus, and that made a lot of money, but it didn't seem to earn the beloved position that Home Alone or It's a Wonderful Life hold. I don't hear people talking with such great affection about any of the Santa Claus films uh, with Tim Allen that I do with Home Alone or with It's a Wonderful Life. So not all Christmas movies fall into this category. So I'm I'm talking to my audience to say, do you see this as well too? I mean, do you, do you see where we're being told, we're being said, you know, you're going to love this and that's the way it's going to be. So I have to take a moment here and, and look at Steven Spielberg's Hook. And, and the, it's really, I guess you can kind of count it as as a holiday film. But most of all, I'm, I'm looking at it from, again, I always have to do this disclaimer. I don't think it's a badly made movie. I think it's got an excellent cast. All of that stuff. Top line cinematography. I'm, I'm friends with the cinematographer of the film. Look, I'm saying the same thing over and over again. I've got to apologize for expressing a goddamn opinion because people will be outraged. And the reason why I say that is, is often on, online people know me for uh, not just tweeting about my films and getting my promo product out there, but also I, I look at, you know, ridiculous social situations and political situations in our world. And I'll often try to find if there's any news in, in medical breakthroughs, whether it's cancer or Alzheimer's or, or anything, genetic breakthroughs. And, you know, most of that stuff you might get some retweets, and you might get some some contact back, some dialogue. But overall, it, I think it, it falls pretty flat. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe some of you really enjoy what I'm doing. But for me, I don't see anything. And one time, man, I simply tweeted one of those unpopular opinion, like my fucking opinion matters. And I tweeted unpopular opinion, Hook is Steven Spielberg's most overrated film. And you should have heard the comments come flooding in and the fucking retweets on this. You would have thought that I tweeted the cure for cancer with the activity that this tweet got. I couldn't believe it. I was astonished. All the stuff that I'll tweet on, all the information that is out there. And this is what you jackasses choose this hill to die upon. This is is what matters to you, defending a mediocre Hollywood film. I feel that Hook is one of those films as well that, okay, as Robin Williams, and, and really, how can you not like Robin Williams? You may not like all of his films, but by all accounts from so many people, he was a good guy and a nice man. But he made some sappy stuff here and there, and Hook is one of them. I think Hook is overblown, overbloated, and overrated. And uh, but because you know, also Williams died by suicide, and and the sadness of losing him, I guess people are a little sensitive about that and take it very personally. It's it's a big, beautiful-looking movie, but it really doesn't do much or have much to say. The same can go for you know this this classic status that they put on. Oh, it's a classic retelling of Peter Pan. Uh, Hook is not one for the ages, folks. It really isn't. It's got some bad dance numbers in it, if I remember correctly, and. I remember I had to screen that because I was working at the movie theater as a manager. We had to watch the print uh, to make sure there were no defects in it. And that was one of those. I was like, oh, for God's sake, when is this over? And then that'll bring me to Christmas Vacation. And I was still running the theater when Christmas Vacation came out. And let's be really clear about this one. Christmas Vacation, I think, was one of those situations where they got lucky, and I don't think they realized how lucky they were getting. The original Vacation, I enjoyed. I saw that as a teenager, and it was one of the first films I saw for free when I worked at that very same movie theater as an usher in high school. I enjoyed uh, Vacation. I thought it was funny with Wally World and all that stuff, and I got it. But I thought European Vacation was horrendous, and it was one of those that you, know, you kind of had a feeling about five minutes into it, you're like, uh-oh. This is going to be nowhere good as, as the first one. And then when I heard there was going to be a Christmas vacation, I thought, well, it's just going to be a lot more of the same. So what do we have? I mean, because we, we have the same story. We have the Griswolds. We know Clark is an idiot, the whole thing. And they're going to be beset upon by idiot family members. And we're going to find out the lineage of Clark's stupidity. And we're going to, you know, have some family hijinks there with a whole new set of kids because these kids never grow up but they all look different and we accept that because it's just really a comical film. And, uh, so we have the whole thing, you know, the lighting of the house and 50 million lights on the house. Haven't seen that before. And, you know, uh, embarrassing family members and pissing off neighbors and going shopping. And then of course the financial crises that go along with it. And I think the only time I ever really laughed or was offered any surprise was when Cousin Eddie showed up. And I remember, I think it was after they lit up the house and they panned down, and suddenly there's Eddie and his wife. Eddie had some of the best lines in that whole film. Obviously, the number one is when he's pumping out the camper's toilet, holding the beer with that trombone playing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and he yells out to that neighbor, uh, shitter's full, Merry Christmas, shitter's full. And that's become a classic. And I will admit, I laughed really hard at that because whoever just even dressed him, the wardrobe designer gets huge props for that, just for that robe and that ridiculous, uh, winter hat. Uh, it's, it, I think it was the line and I'm not going to get it right. Cause I'm still not feeling well, but it was something along the line of, uh, that his wife will run the microwave and, and Eddie will piss his pants and forget who he is for 20 minutes. And, uh, because of the metal plate in his head. And I, I about, Laughed right out of my seat on that one. It was such a great line. I wish I could write something so fantastic as that line. And yet, over the years, that movie got the same beloved rehabilitation. It did fine at the box office. It did well. But it wasn't all that hilarious. And I don't really find it all that touching of a Christmas movie. And it's actually very long. It takes a long time to get to where we finally go. And if it wasn't for Cousin Eddie coming into the picture, I can't imagine what the film was like. It got this beloved status there now, Christmas ornaments and and actually under tree placements of recreating the Griswold Christmas. And I'm like, I guess it's it's a third film in in a mediocre comedy series. I mean, let's face it. Anybody really calling to mind any of the other vacation films, you know, after Christmas vacation and aside from the original and hell, they tried to to reboot it, uh, coming up with Ed Helms before. And, and we saw how well that went over. So I, I don't understand this embracing of National Lampoon's Christmas vacation. I, I don't get it. Yeah. I guess it's one of those things. Like I hear people, Oh my God, we we play it constantly. We just put it on loop. Uh, and I guess some cable stations are, which I'm going to be leading into with a Christmas story. They're doing that now. They just, it's 24 hours of Christmas vacation. And my question is, Does it fucking warrant that? I mean, is it really all that funny or do we just have another shiny piece of shitty candy in that bowl? Is that what it is? Like it's, it's just the best thing to suck on for a while to pass some time because everything else just isn't all that great. What is just so great about Christmas vacation that it's become a timeless holiday classic? Why did Jesus die for our sins? Because he died for your sins. And then that leads me right over to A Christmas Story. And again, I'm going to make it very clear. I don't hate the movie. I think it's extremely well made. And I was one of about eight people that sat in the old Sherman Theater because even the mall did not pick up A Christmas Story when it came out because it came from Bob Clark and everybody expected a Porky's kind of comedy in the, in the raunchy early 80s. And instead, we got this very sweet, very nostalgic Uh, look back at at a simpler time at Christmas uh, with the movie that we got, with our famous, you know, leg lamp in the window and Melinda Dillon screaming and crying throughout the movie and Darren McGavin inexplicably playing her husband. I even remember that as a boy thinking, he should be her dad in this movie. She was far too young, but, you know, May, December, courtship, whatever. Uh, A Christmas Story is probably the, the first victim Of this After It's a Wonderful Life because I called a victim because I think A Christmas Story also really has its heart in the right place much better than It's a Wonderful Life. And I think A Christmas Story is a far better made film than It's a Wonderful Life. But it bombed at the box office, as most people know. It did not do well, but it got an instant rehabilitation on home video and also on a cable. And it started to become a staple of the holiday season. And the only reason I can think of is, is because, well, you know, CBS had Frosty and, and uh, Rudolph and all that stuff or the networks. I don't know what I know CBS definitely had Rudolph. And we were still at a time when, you know, if you didn't see it on TV, you didn't see it at all. And even though they were starting to be available on home video, people still wanted to see that stuff. As a tradition, sit their new kids down and say, look, I used to watch this as a kid. Same with The Wizard of Oz. Uh, the same thing. You know, you get to stay up late and watch something special. And, and that includes, you know, Rudolph and Frosty, The Grinch, Charlie Brown, and then going out of season to *Ricky, Tiki Tavy and, and and things like that. The Wizard of Oz. Um, they were special moments on television. A Christmas Story kind of got that treatment, but it was TBS that turned around and started that fucking 24 hours of a Christmas story, just looping it over and over. I, I, I don't know. Did it work? It must have. It, it must have done something. I mean, I don't know what kind of revenue TBS made off this, but it, it seemed to work because I remember people going, oh, we set our TVs to TBS and we just play round the clock a Christmas story. I'm like, why don't you just put on some fucking Christmas music and talk to each other? Like, how many times can you watch this thing? Look, I love Jaws, but I don't want to see Jaws on a 24-hour loop. And if they do, I'm sure as fuck not sitting through a 24-hour loop of Jaws. Now, with a Christmas story, I will say, we can understand. Like, the, the, the thing that really resonated with me, everybody, pretty much everybody remembers what it was like to want that one big gift. Uh, I remember for us, it was, you know, circle some things out of the Sears catalog. And I'm not going to get into Christmas nostalgia for this episode, However, I could relate to that, and, and especially I, I always wanted a BB gun, and I did get a Daisy BB gun when I was, I believe, like eight years old and one of the first things, and it's talked about in my first film, The Fields, is my grandmother told me, you'll shoot your eye out with it. My God will shoot his eye out. It'll come out like a grape. So I, I could definitely get all that. But the one thing that resonated with me in the film, and I wonder if, if most people can remember their first time being rooked by commercialism, when you wanted something so badly, and then when you got it, you realized it was just part of, of one big commercial thing. And that was when he got his decoder ring, the Little Orphan Annie decoder ring, and it spelled out a commercial, to be sure to drink your Ovaltine or something like that. And he was like, son of a bitch, a crummy commercial. So there were relatable things to it, and, and I guess we can get it. But to play it 24 hours and then hail it as a, a Christmas classic, again, I, I ask why? All of these films that I've mentioned are very much like the McMansions that Kate Wagner talks about in her TED Talk and, and on her website. They're these big, beautiful things. And we drive through neighborhoods and we look at them and they have grandiose windows and different tiling for uh, uh, their rooftops. And it, it's it's just, she said, they're hideous but we love them and, and we consume them and we buy them and they're popular. And then, you know, when you do hear about people who own them, they complain that, you know, there's no storage space in certain things or there's no, there's no functionality to rooms or certain things or they, they're too big and they can't heat them or cool them and they're wasteful on, on, on energy bills. And yet we still go after them. And that's kind of like what we're seeing in our entertainment. We have these huge gas guzzling, gigantic productions and, and we say we love them and and we patronize them. And sometimes we even bestow them with huge box office intake. And, and one of those I'll give you is Avatar, an expensive motion picture. And we've waited how long for, for, I guess, a sequel that just wrapped. Why is Avatar the number one grossing motion picture ever? I mean, I saw it. I saw it in theaters with the 3D. I get it. And you know, I heard of people that became depressed after leaving. They wanted to live in, in uh, Pandora. To me, that sounds less like critical thinking and more like mental instability. I mean, are these movies, you know, playing toward people with really weak minds that you can become depressed after leaving a movie because you felt so immersed in it. I felt none of that. I mean, it was 3d, 3d is 3d man. And although it was good, um, it was dances with wolves in space and Fern Gully with, with aliens. I mean, it's well-made. It's James Cameron, Sigourney Weaver, all that stuff. Don't, don't get me wrong. I just, I don't, I don't see the, the huge thing about it. And, but we're told we have to love it. You know, it's important. It's an important movie, Oscars, and we love it. That's what I'm talking about here in this podcast. Is Avatar also a McMansion in the, in movie row? Like all the other films that I've talked about, Home Alone, Wonderful Life, Christmas Story, Christmas Vacation. I mean, are, are they all just McMansions? The Shining, I think The Shining is a big McMansion. Uh, you know, the Overlook is a McMansion, is what it is. Uh, architecture that is that is useless, non-functional, and pretty much leaves us going nowhere. That's a good description of The Shining. So now that brings me right around to probably the biggest McMansion on the block, and that is Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Look, The Irishman is is beautifully made. There, There's no question about it. And I'm even going to go further to say that I did not find any of the de-aging type of software used. I did not find it distracting at all. And in fact, I wouldn't have even noticed it other than the fact that I know these actors are much older than what they looked in the flashback stories. However, I thought it was properly used and was not a distraction at all. Now, I did not see it on the big screen and I heard that's where most of the complaints come from, that the, the huge projection on the big screen brings out the defects far more than, than on the small screen. I watched it on a 65 inch uh, LED TV. It is beautifully made. It is well written. It is all well put together. And it is masterful coming from a man who knows this medium so well. And most of all knows this genre. So there's there's no dispute there whatsoever on the quality of the motion picture. I guess my question is, why is this instantly bestowed as a classic? Because of its subject matter. And why do we celebrate? Really, what is a very despicable lifestyle? Would any of you listening right now want your children to enter into that lifestyle of of mobhood? And you know, we we look at the life of Jimmy Hoffa, and and we look at uh, you know the the Buffalinos and all of this stuff, and, and Sheeran, and really, all these people are they're they're people that pretend and masquerade as civilized people. They're thugs. They're animals. They're criminals and their low lives. That's what they are. And we're celebrating this. We treat them as princes and kings. And then we look around our lives and we wonder why we have the situations that we do. You know, was the Irishman even needed? I always felt that Martin Scorsese's capping achievement was Goodfellas in that genre. Although some will argue it is casino. Do we really need anything more after casino? What more can we say? We have more older men uh, with beautiful women on their arms, dressed to the nines. The women are smoking. Uh, and then the, the stories always end where they go to jail or grow old and lived a life that, in the end, all that power and money really gave them nothing anyway. And they, they die as these rumpled old men in nursing homes or, you know, shot in a barber chair. I mean, how many more fucking times do we need to see this shit? And why do we keep celebrating it? Why are we celebrating, like, the great people in our society, the the people that are doing something positive. Why are we constantly making these movies celebrating thieves and crooks, liars and murderers? The Irishman may be the ugliest McMansion on the block because it's also the most dangerous. While the others are just Christmas stories that get whatever unwarranted, in my opinion, love and free passes. The Irishman seems to come across as celebrating a A very sick and depraved lifestyle. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm no prude. I thought it was a great film and I enjoyed it very much. In fact, at three and a half hours, which I felt was excessive, it still didn't feel that long to me. I mean, it was like, okay, this is getting a little long. It didn't bother me. The running time I was able to watch in the comfort of my home. Granted, I was sick while watching it, but I did enjoy Scorsese's film and I think I made a clear... And starting to discuss this, it is hardly anywhere near a bad film, and it might be his crowning cinematic achievement, but it is definitely a swan song with Keitel and uh, Pacino and also with uh, De Niro. So it's, it's kind of the end of the road for these guys, and they know it, but they're making some great stuff. So it has nothing to do with that. But my point is, the image that it gives off, why is this instantly embraced and beloved and everything? When really, we, may sh- we really should be maybe looking at this with a far more critical eye, not as to the construction of the film, but what it's trying to convey to us is what we hold valuable in our society. And when you start to bring that up, you instantly go, oh, you're a hater, you're jealous, blah, blah, blah. I am none of those things, folks. I'm saying that instead of just plunking down the money and going deep into debt for the mortgage for the biggest, ugliest McMansion on the block, because you have the biggest, ugliest McMansion on the block... Maybe you should look at it. Maybe you should really take a good walk through and see that those columns that are on the front of of that house that look so great are really hollow and they're fiberglass or or foam and that they're not real concrete or marble or granite. And maybe you should look and wonder why. Why do we have these giant ugly windows in a place that they really don't belong and who's going to clean those fuckers? And most of all, They don't look good, but we're told they look good. And why do we have turrets on the end of of a stucco-type Tudor part of the house and a mishmash of things? But, hey, I have my giant 4,000-square-foot mansion, and it looks good, and that's how I'm playing it. That's how I roll. And if we start applying that attitude toward our entertainment, which we are, we're not really looking at things properly, and this is why... We're not getting the quality that yet at the same time people say they want. Now, the Irishman is quality, but it also, in my opinion, is just celebrating a very tired genre that really doesn't deserve much more celebrating. And as we continue to lose our ability to critically think, we're, we're losing our way. We should be looking at things and their impact. What is the impact of the McMansion on the land, on the environment, on our pocketbooks? Okay, I'm not ready to call Greta Thunberg and get her in here. I'm just saying, why don't we look at what we buy? Why do we need a new fucking car model every year? What's so different about this year's model than the last? And why do we celebrate this? Why do we celebrate going 45, dollars $50,000 in debt for an SUV? So we can park that in front of our house that we're growing you know, deeply in debt on as well too just to throw off that image. Why is this lifestyle beloved? All my questions that I've just asked you are no different than what I asked those people at that church. So why are these films so beloved? Well, because they're great. So that's how I'm leaving you with this cinema podcast. And I'd love to hear from you. Is it a herd mentality? Is it a hive mentality? Is it something that we just want to buy in? Have we become so lost that this is where we go? Are these touchstones or... Are they just the best of the shittiest candy in the bowl? This is Harrison Smith signing off from this Sunday's podcast. Still with pneumonia, but getting better. Thank you all also for your your, uh, best wishes that came in. I'll survive and I'll be back for episode 26. Thank you again. Have a great week. Head on over to iTunes and give me a like and review. And if you want to read my cinema blog, You'll find it at horrorfuel.com forward slash author forward slash Harrison.